Well, good morning once again to you all here in all these seats. Um, before I begin this sermon, I just want to take a moment to say thank you to this body that has invited the Greens for uh, the last couple months um, to be a part of this internship, especially the hospitality that you all have shown um, in opening up your homes um, providing us with good food to eat and conversation to be had. It has been a wonderful experience, and we are just uh, very thankful for this time here. Um, but as the old saying goes, all good things must come to an end, and so in a couple weeks we will be headed back to St. Louis to finish out one last final semester at Covenant Theological Seminary, and uh, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll be returning this winter. So thank you. It's been great. Um, We'll be at family camp next week, so that's why I'm, I'm saying that. Uh, with, if you would, let's pray. Take a moment to pray, and I'll get started. <clears throat> Pick, Lord, we, we come here nothing, bringing nothing to offer in, in the way of works or deeds. Lord, but know that you the creator of all things, is to be glorified and to worship. And that's why we come, Lord, is knowing that we are fallen, broken human beings. Know that in your love and in your redemption have rescued us from condemnation and have given us life. And so now, Lord, we can worship and teach freely in that reality. Father, that you have had mercy on us and so that that will stir our hearts towards obedience. And Father, I just pray that this next hour and a half of service would be a source of refreshment and nourishment for our busy, weary souls. Father, would you speak deep into our lives the ways in which the gospel is transforming us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I want you to picture a scene for a moment. This is a dramatic sentence, so get ready for it. Flakes of frothy saliva gathering at the corners of his mouth as he eagerly condemns an innocent man to death. This is often how I picture Saul, or should I say Paul, in Acts chapter 7, or as Luke portrays him in Acts chapter 7, at the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of Christianity. In Acts 9, Luke would go on to make this observation about Saul or Paul. And he says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against disciples, the disciples of the Lord. So that Luke is, is showing that in every indication in this text, Saul was eager, if not taking pleasure in the persecution and blood being spilt of God's family thinking about this indignation, this anger, violence that characterized the life of Saul, have you ever thought about this question of how did Saul become Paul? How did Saul, a murderer, an axe, go on to write to a church in Corinth who is infighting, is so severe, and that some of the practices are so wicked that they're, they're threatening to divide his fellowship? And at the end of the letter, he says this in, in chapter 13, he says, love, love. Love is, is, is this, love is patient, 
It is kind. It does not envy or boast that ultimately love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Furthermore, how is it that a guy like Paul, who can at one point talk about how he had more zeal for following the ways of his father than anybody else in Israel, go on to write to a church in Ephesus and say that ultimately you are not saved by any merit in yourself, but you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that one may boast. How does that transformation take place? Have we ever just stopped and wondered like that? How does that happen? I'll tell you how. The gospel. It's the gospel. The gospel is what allows that to happen, the occasion for that to happen. It is the gospel that gives Paul the occasion to write to his young disciple Timothy saying this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> the gospel is God's wonderful redemptive work inside of Paul's life. It's that that frees Paul from that old wicked Saul. In reality, and this is where we want to kind of start going at as far as today's talk, is that the work and, and what happened in Paul's life as far as God's doing is, is nothing exceptional. Right? We can all say that, that there aren't any Pauls today, but what the truth of the matter is, is when a person comes to embrace a saving faith in Christ, the same thing that happened to Saul that turned him to Paul is the same thing that happens to us. It's God's redeeming work inside of us, inside of the heart of every believer so what the, the issue really for us is that our struggle is to identify practically how is it that the gospel transforms both our personalities, our personhood, but also the relationships around us. Now I want to make it clear that today I'm not talking about the exhaustive kind of exposition on the implications of the, the gospel on the life of a believer. It's too much. I would have to, it would have to be a whole series of sermons. As one uh, famous Dutch theologian slash politician, Abraham Kuyper, put it about the beauty of Jesus' message, that there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, is, who is so sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Right? It's, it's all-inclusive. It's all-encompassing the ways in which the gospel transform our, transforms our lives and the implications that it has uh, in our lives. Rather, what I want to do today is to turn to Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, and talk about the implications that Paul is expressing in his testimony for a specific purpose to a specific community. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there to Galatians 1, chapters 11 through 24. And as you're doing so, I'm going to set the stage for us, so long as I can find Galatians in my Bible. There we go. Galatians is written to a, a church in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. If you have any questions about Turkey and about the church in Asia Minor, Stan Langhofer just returned from Turkey for two weeks on Friday. So, Stan, 
uh, just I default any questions about this, he can, he can give you an overview because I'm sure his experiences in, in Asia Minor and visiting the churches is fresh on his mind. Um, but the, the, the letter is being written to a community of churches in Galatia, and it's modern-day Turkey. And, and so often, I just want to throw this out here, that often when we want to seek what the letters, like what is, what, what, where are they going, how do we understand these letters that are being written, one of the easiest things that we can do is just spend the first few minutes of our time reading a book of the Bible and just reading the first few verses. Because often, the, the writer will tell you explicitly where they're going. Like, why are they writing this letter? What occasion has occurred that's causing them to write this letter? And so often we want to jump to the good stuff, and I would encourage you to spend those few moments reading the first few verses because, like in Galatians, Paul tells us exactly what's going on. He says in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So what's going on? Well, in essence, there have been false teachers that have arisen in this community. And they're going about and they're saying, they're doing two things. The first thing they're doing is they're trying to discredit Paul's gospel. They're saying, this guy, he's out of whack. It's something that he's either made up or he's getting it from some other people. And what they're saying is in the gospel that they're preaching from, from just kind of consensus for some, from some scholars or most scholars, is that they're preaching a gospel that is a faith in Christ plus something else, right? Faith in Christ plus something else. And that plus something else is the works of the law. So really what that means is that they're asking and they're telling people that in order to be saved, you have to have faith in Christ, Jesus Christ as the Messiah, but also you need to keep the works of the law. You need to, if you're a male, be circumcised. You need to keep eating the dietary laws of, of the Old Testament and, and, and continue to do these things. And it's a false gospel, and Paul is, is preaching against that. And these false teachers aren't just teaching and preaching a false gospel and, and trying to discredit Paul's gospel. They're also trying to discredit Paul as an apostle. And we know that because why this is why Paul says in verse 1 that he is Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul's saying that his apostleship is not rooted in any sort of committee of men, that it's, he's been appointed by God for a specific task. And that task is to be a, a specifically an a, uh, apostle or a preacher to the Gentiles. In Galatians, um, in this passage that we're looking at today, Paul gives a testimony of his life, his conversion. To, to establish his own credibility. And in essence, what he's saying is that since God has given the gospel, that ultimately we must live transformed lives. Let me read aloud our text, and then I'll, I'll kind of disclose the two principles I'll be working with. Starting in verse 11, Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, 
who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother, And I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and Silica. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. There's there's two principles that I think that we can glean from Paul's testimony with this idea of gospel transformation that takes place that I want to kind of park our our hats on for today. First is this, the gospel reorients our view of salvation. And two, the gospel changes how we relate to others. First, this idea that it transforms our view of salvation. Just as Paul asserted in verse 1 that his apostleship is not rooted in any choice of man, he affirms that his gospel that he is preaching is, is, is housed or comes from God the Father. He says in verse 11 and 12, For I would have, no, have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached is not man's gospel. So despite the claim for the, the false teachers are trying to discredit Paul and his gospel, he is, he is, he's cutting against that. He's saying, no, I've received the true gospel. And, I, and he's angry with them that they would be so easily swayed to believe something else. That is a real temptation in their own lives to be swayed by these false teachers. In essence, they are, they are holding to, they are, they are tempted or they have believed that something else other than Christ can save them. Now, connected to this, there was a French philosopher. Named, his name's Luke Ferry, and you can buy his book. It's called A Brief History of Thought. I, wrote it, I read it over uh, Christmas, and it was great. He's not a Christian um, at all. Um, so read it discerningly if you decide to do it. But he, in essence, what he's doing is he's giving an overview of, of Western thought since the, from the Greek philosophers until contemporary and postmodern thought. And instead of, like so many other intro books, if you don't like philosophy, bear with me for a second. But I do, and this is, this is really helpful, is that like so many other uh, intro books, he's not just giving an overview of their beliefs. What he's saying is that all of these philosophies can agree and can recognize that one thing, that all of humanity, all of men and, and women at one point will taste death. And so ultimately the question is, what are we going to do with that? What is it that saves us? And, and, and philosophy has been a pursuit of answering the question of salvation. What is it that's going to save us? And it had, as I'm reading that, I'm just like, well, thank you, finally, somebody admits, somebody's honest that it's, it's, it's that, it's not all these other things, it's, it's salvation. And you know, in this room, there are people, all of us, we all, in our worldview, have, have constructed an idea of what saves us. What is, it, what is salvation? What, what is it that will save us? And often... We are flirting, if you're, if you're God's people, or, or if you have your own questions and you don't know where you, know, where you stand um, with regards to Christianity. We have questions and answers to what saves us, but we ultimately entertain other ideas of what saves us outside of the gospel. And what I mean is this. 
is that <clears throat> there are often a plethora of religions that we experience in our culture as we've grown the last, last 60 or so years that, that are, are able to tell us that something else other than Christ will save us. And there are different values in our society that society upholds. It says if you just have enough money, if you just have enough sex, if you just have enough love, if you just have enough power, then you'll be saved. And what Paul and what the gospel is saying is that only Christ saves. Only the gospel can save us. Only the, only the gospel can liberate us from ourselves. And that these worldviews and these religions that, um, that are out there, what distinguishes the gospel from all these other false gospels and false religions, as, was, as one pastor puts it, the gospel is news about what God has already done for you rather than instruction and advice, and advice about what you are to do for God. In other religions, God reveals to us how we can find or achieve salvation. In Christianity, God achieves salvation for us. Okay, so here's, here's what I want to say. Is that for a lot of us in, in this building right now, that we would all, for the majority, would say that, yeah, Christ saves. But where I think the temptation lies is that we want to add that plus. Christ saves plus, if I just had a little bit more wealth, I'd be satisfied. Christ saves plus, if I just had a little bit more affluence or influence, I'd be satisfied. Christ saves, but if I was just a little skinnier, if I was a little prettier, if I was a little bit more attractive, then I would be satisfied. If my husband or my wife would just love me a little bit more, I would be satisfied plus Christ. And, and what Paul is saying and what he's cutting against is saying that you can only be satisfied in Christ, that that is where our identity is, that only he saves the gospel can only bring true, only brings true satisfaction and true transformation. It is Christ's redemptive work expressed in the gospel. So moving on, not only does the gospel reorient our view of salvation, but as Paul notes in the rest of this passage, it transforms our relationships. Paul moves on from talking about the origin of his gospel in God, in Christ, to discussing his own con- conversion. Um, Let me read again, starting in verse 13, what Paul says about this. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So Paul notes two things that characterize his former lives. One, that he was a violent persecutor and that he was self-righteous. But what he is saying is that God has rescued him from both of those realities. Not only that, is he, is he, is he being rescued from that, but now he's been given the task of building up God's church. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful reversal of priorities and in, in this reorientation so remarkable that as in verse 22, he says, and I was still unknown in persons to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. The terrorizer Saul has now become a source of God's glory in Paul. The gospel has transformed his relationships. He's no longer being a persecutor. He's one of the persecuted. 
He's no longer this hateful man. He's, he's preaching love and patience and kindness to these churches in which he is building up, that God is using him to build up. And so, for us, what I would like to say is that the gospel will transform our relationships first in our relationship with God, but second in our, in our interpersonal relationships, our relationships with others. I know of a pastor who, when dropping off his children to work or, or to school, will always say this, I love you. I want you to know that. But more importantly, I want you to know that you are a child of the King. You're a child of the King. And the truth of the matter is, as God's people, our identity is sons and daughters of the living God. But it wasn't always like this. And, and Paul is the first one to tell us and himself that at one point he was alienated that he was, he, was, he was in exile from God in Colossians 1 and Romans 5 specifically, that they were once enemies, that, that unbelievers were once enemies of God, but before that, we had a nature that was bent towards ourselves. But God in his mercy has reconciled us to himself through his son Jesus Christ, and now we can stand on sure footing knowing that we are children of the living God that we are sons and daughters of the King. Similar to uh, what I emphasized in the last relationship or last sermon was the, the vital idea of a relationship with the Lord. That if we think, if we just see our, our faith as, as a duty, we have to read our Bibles because that's what Christians do, which is important. We have to pray because that's what Christians do, which is important. Hear what I'm not saying? But if we, if we only see it as a duty and we, we take out that relational element of, of God the Father wanting to enter in relationship with us so that we can grow in Christ, so that we can begin loving the things of God, if we don't have that aspect kind of centralized in our hearts, then we, we will always live deficient lives as Christians that, that there is a joy in being a father of the king or a, a daughter or son of the king And I say that because I know that a lot of us come from broken homes where the idea of a father who is God is terrorizing. And what I'm saying is don't buy into that lie because the the father, God the father is freeing. It's it's wonderful. It's it's beautiful the way in which he relates to his children and ways in which he shows mercy to his his people. That you are a child of the king. So Paul is talking about this gospel trans- transformation that he was once an enemy. That he's done so many evil and wicked things and now God has reconciled him and he's able to be free to be used for his purposes. So a relationship between him and God has been transformed. But ultimately too, the relationships between him and other members of the church have changed and those on the outside world have changed as well. So... The second idea of this transformation of relationships is is how we relate to others, both inside and outside of the church. All right, I always um, struggle with wanting to do interactive sort of, I don't know, illustrations. So amuse me for a second. Let me ask a question. Just show of hands. Uh, How many here would consider themselves a fan of K-State, the University of Kansas State? Okay, there we go. So almost half. What about KU? There we go. Yeah, that would be me. And how many really just don't even care? Yeah, 
Yeah, right, you know? Exactly. Or, or it could have been others or whatever. The point I'm trying to make in this is that, you know what brought us here together was not our love and enthusiasm for Kansas State Athletics, nor was it a love and enthusiasm for the University of Kansas and all its glorious pursuits in basketball especially. Get, tipping my hands. No, what, what brought us here together was Christ, right? And, and, and I've said this before, and I, I want to say it one more time, is that outside of Christ calling us here to embody these seats today, we would not be here together. Most of us, unless we're related, would have no other relationships with each other because we are so different. We're not here because we enjoy riding motorcycles. We're not here because we enjoy crocheting, even though those are, those are great things. We are here because Christ has called us as he knits us together as a body of Christ. And so people that may have once been enemies can actually sit together in the same room praising God and glorifying him as they work together to build up the body of Christ. It's glorious. Glorious. That's why we are called here. The gospel transforms our relationships. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to, to get at is that Paul when he's concluding his letter to the Galatians, he says this. He says, Bear one another's burdens so to fulfill the law of Christ. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of God. See, Paul's sharp tone that often characterizes people when to critique his letter to the Galatians, that sharp tone where he says, who has be- bewitched you, he calls the Galatians a fool, is only done so so that he can bring them back into to an experiencing true transformation of the gospel with the end result that they would love each other and that they would build each other up, especially those who are in the household of God. I... Uh, I had a, a, a brief conflict with another brother of mine in seminary. And I went to, and, we, and it's all good now, we've totally reconciled, it was just a brief conflict. And um, I went to talk to a professor about it because I just wanted to know, I just wanted to have a little bit of perspective. And we we're going on this walk, and uh, he's, we're just talking. And he says, Steve, you know, here's the deal. You are not called, the scriptures do not call us to like anyone. They don't. They don't call us to like anybody. But you know what it does call us to? It does call us to love everyone. It does. And that sank deep because I, I, I have never thought about that. I'd never heard that. And it is so true that the gospel calls us to love everyone. You know, this church, it will only be as vibrant and, health, and healthy as in and as far as in which we go to love one another and I've said this in Sunday school, and I'll say it again, that the, the, the church community that we're a part of, that you're a part of, should be so healthy in the way in which they love each other that as people are coming in to visit this church, whether they're visitors or don't know the gospel at all, they just came off the street, should see the ways in which we love one another, bear each other's burdens, so that they want some of whatever we got, which is the gospel. That is the reality of what God is doing with Paul in this letter, and he, he can't help but talk about it. The second part of application is this, and this might be stretching it, but that ultimately the gospel will transform the ways in which we see other people outside the church. Particularly, it will encourage us, and it should encourage us to share the good news. Right? 
News is not news if it's not shared. It has to be communicated. It implies being communicated. And so it is often a a, a temptation for us to, to buy into the lie that our faith is some sort of private affair, that it's only something that I do on Sunday mornings and when I'm reading my Bible by myself and it's not something that I have to express. Or it's just this either unwilling or willful uh, denying of the call of, of, of the, especially the New Testament to share the gospel. We have not conformed our hearts to what the scriptures have told us to do so that gospel transformation has taken place. The type that Paul talks about in Romans 1 verse 15 when he says that that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you, you who are in Rome for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. He can't help share the gospel. And when I've been back, I've talked to my, my wife, and this is not me boasting by any means, but there's just this desire to want to share the gospel with, with friends and family and people that I don't know, because as I learn to love the church better and as God works with me, as he's doing things inside of me, you can't help but want to, to talk and share to other people about the life-giving message of Christ. So, what I've asked you to do on your outline, and it's on the back page, if you haven't seen it, is, is ask, who are the three people? It's kind of, some sense, gimmicky to say three people, but it, it's, to, it's just to get the ball rolling on who could you prayerfully consider and love sharing the gospel with in this next year? Who, who is it? What does that look like? And I want you to know that I'm not just saying this as somebody who's saying this and not doing it, that I have distinctly in my my journal three people that I am praying for to share the gospel with and I would I would challenge you to do that as 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 God is transforming you there should be this desire to seek other, to see others be transformed to the good news so we see that ultimately God is in the gospel is transforming for Paul his view of what saves but ultimately his view of relationships last week at the beginning of the sermon that Mike gave, he gave a, what I've heard is a powerful, personal story about the power of prayer. I am going to give a personal story, but it will not be nothing like what Mike shared. So bear with me in that, that that was an incredible story. But I do have a story from my own experience. And I'm sharing this, and some of you are aware of this story um, because, because you, you've heard about it, but also I'm sharing it because I'm not boasting by any means. I'm sharing it because this is a, a point of where the gospel has, has worked into my family's life in, in an incredible way in, in two different aspects. So uh, in January, we knew that Grace's grandpa was going to, his, his, it's called long-term care insurance, was ending. Um, and long-term care insurance was basically paying for his assisted living cost. And um, he had been, he'd actually been moved, in, moved into a Medicaid nursing home. And despite being 90, he's 93 years old, he'll be 94 in October. Despite being 93 years old, he was relatively independent. So he didn't really need the care that was offered in this Medicaid nursing home. And he was there in the room that we eventually saw was probably the size of a, a small dorm room shared between another man and himself with, a, with a, uh, a screen that split the room in half. And I remember thinking to myself, it was a prison. And so we go back from seeing this, and he had been calling family and friends 
asking if they could live, and, it, and, and, and nobody was able to because, because of the care that he needed and the accommodations he needed. Nobody had that access to such needs. Um, there was family members that wanted to take him in and, and was hoping that they could, but they knew it just wouldn't work out for his care. And so one night, Grace comes into our bedroom as I'm laying there, and we begin talking, and she starts telling me about how um, Grandpa has had an impact on her life how he has been instrumental. Her, his grand, her grandmother and grandfather had been instrumental in raising her in faith. And as she's telling me the story and of the impact that she's had and how upset she is about the fact that he's going to have to live in this nursing home, Paul's words come to me in my mind in 1 Timothy 5.8. And it says this, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay, so this is, immediately a thought comes into my mind. We should ask Grandpa to live with us. And I'm thinking, no, that's, that's, that's crazy, right? We're in seminary, living, you know, <laughs> barely able to make men's ends meet. My wife is already taking care of a two-year-old, not even a two-year-old, a 18-month-old or 19-month-old and a two-month-old baby and she's having to take care of a, a 30-year-old grown man who's in seminary who is always stressed out, right? And so the, in this process, and so it's just this, it's like, no, this, this can't be, this, you know, this, this can't be um, something that's an option. And as we start talking about it and as we start praying about it, we realize that God is asking us to invite Grandpa to come live with us. And so we invite a 93-year-old Grandpa to come live with a young family and two little ones. And he lived with us for um, six months. He recently just moved to Overbrook um, in an assisted living. It's, it's an amazing testimony to God's provision to his children, even at, in a, even at the late uh, years of life. But the point of the story is, is this. And this is why I tell it, is that the gospel, first it reoriented our priorities. It wasn't just about us. It wasn't just about our time, my time. This is me speaking about me and what I want to do. It was about faithfully seeking how the gospel has transformed our lives as a family and as my life. So there was that aspect in which God used this to, to reorient our call and what we would usually uh, be pursuing Instead, we're pursuing faithfulness to the, the implications of the gospel in our life. But also, that I, I want you to know, as glorious as this was, this was extremely challenging for us. And that six months was a part of a, a year that was very, very trying and very challenging. And at times, we were just like, God, what, what, what is going on? Like, you know, Moses in the wilderness and the people in the wilderness, God, have you called us out here to die, to perish? And in those moments, it was the gospel that sustained us. And I know that there are people in this room that what we went through in that year, it pales in comparison to the, to the things that you are going through, the storms and turbulence in your lives that you're going through. And what I want to say to you this morning is that the gospel is what can sustain you. It's not just something that you affirm in your mind once and believe. That it's, a, it's a source of daily renewal in which the gospel, we can cling to the gospel and know that God is working all things to according to his purposes for his glory, and that we have been invited into that so that we can be sustained in these, in these storms and in these, in these 
times of chaos, he brings peace. Paul, who saw that another church in 1 Thessalonians was experiencing something like that, says in verses chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up um, each other, just as in fact you are doing. Um, often a critique of my, my preaching is that it, they say, they'll say, people will say things like, you're a caged lion, you need to ring it in. You speak too fast, you speak too loudly. I know, that's something that, that I'm so aware of and that God is working in me and, and trying to refine me in this. The reason why I talk loud and I talk fast is because I have seen at a personal level the, the transformation of the gospel taking place in my life and in my family. And I can't help but get excited. I can't help but talk loud. I can't. I'm going to talk fast. I'm going to talk loud until God brings it in because I am so, I've been made so alive by the power of the gospel. And so many of you have had, experienced that same type of story. And I'm asking you, some of you today, don't you want that? Don't you yearn for that? Isn't there a longing that you have been fighting that has not been quenched? And I'm here to say, that by Paul's words, it's the gospel. That type of hope, that type of reorientation and transformation... It's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, King Jesus, thank you that in your mercy and kindness you did not leave us, but you offered your Son who has been exalted and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, one day he will reign again, and it will be glorious. We look forward to that day, Father, in which you bring all things to an end. And Lord, we look forward to the day in which, we will, in which you will be reigning over all. Father, I just ask that the gospel would be not just something that is just a common word, Lord, but it would be a source of strength for all of us. Thank you, Lord, that you have, um, you have brought us here this day to worship in spirit and in truth. Thank you, Lord, for the kindness again that you've shown to us. And it's in the sweet name of Jesus we pray. Amen.